This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fur Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fur Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. I got another great guest for you. This guy's a broker with Yale Realty Advisors. He helped me sell a park here at the end of last year, end of December. It's uh, March 30th, the 23 as we were recording. A uh, friend of mine, uh, great knowledgeable guy in the industry. Really happy to have him. Please help me welcome my guest, Ken Scheffler. Ken, thanks for coming on, man. For having me. It's a great honor. Yeah, I've uh, listened to your show before. Uh, I think you're almost up to 200 episodes. It's impressive stuff. So I'm happy to be part of the history. Well, thank you. Unfortunately, I don't get paid by the hour when I record okay. these podcasts, but uh, I do have quite a few out there and I've been, been wanting to get you on for a while. I knew we were going to get that deal closed and that was a, a great story yeah. to tell. Just just launched a case study on that a couple of weeks back. Yeah. That particular deal. I'll talk about that later on. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, I obviously I know you well, but for those of my audience that do not, maybe give us a little more of your background, how you got into MH, what else you guys do, yourself in particular, and we'll go from there. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I had a whole career before I got into commercial real estate. Um, out of college, I actually got a job as a writer and I was doing uh, movie scripts and TV shows, believe it or not. Um, interesting life, where, where life takes you. Um, so I did that for a little while, had some success, uh, sold a bunch of stuff, but never really got stuff on the air or in the movie theaters. Um, not to go too deep into it, but that is a crazy, crazy business. You can make a lot of money and, and never get anything produced. Um, so you sold your so you sold your stuff, meaning somebody else said this is worthy yeah, you, of production, but then they just they just never implemented. So then you <laughs> never got the fanfare. Exactly. So you'd sell a script, and then some. You meet with some development executive who said, "I just got back from vacation with my grandmother. She went ziplining. It was a great uh, moment. Can we put that in this in the script?" And you're like, "I just wrote a World War II script. I don't think it fits." And that's why the movie didn't get made because you can figure out how to put a grandmother on the zipline on the you know on the battlefront. And I had so many experiences like that. And after a while, I just got frustrated and I wanted to move into a career that had more control. It was more predictable. And of course, I chose commercial real estate. Yeah, um, those, those wise. <laughs> Again, pretty much, pretty much every two weeks, you get the same paycheck, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so I had a buddy who was doing commercial real estate. He hooked me up with, um, with a big national brokerage. That's where I started. Marcus and Milchap. Um, and I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with it. It's a good company. Um, I was doing... Um, multifamily for a while. And it was just a, uh, it was a very saturated, very uh, overexposed business. You would try to reach out to owners and they would get calls 10, 20, 30 times a day. I mean, nonstop right. so much that they were, it felt like they were celebrities. They would change their phone every three months. It was pretty, it was pretty ridiculous. Wow. So very saturated. Uh, and I wanted to do something else. And I had a senior broker who was switching to manufactured housing. And so I made the jump with him and, um, Ever since then, it's been great. I stayed at Marcus for a little while, uh, loved the business, but there were just some things about the company that didn't fit. It's a really big company. I was looking for a little bit more, um, you know, boutique feel. And so I one day looked around and said, who are the brokerages that are really doing well in this space? And I found uh, Yale Advisors. Uh, I thought they were doing amazing stuff. They had great packages. They really kind of delivered on, on everything they promised. And I reached out to the founder, James Cook. Somehow, so we talked to him into giving me an interview. A couple more interviews later, um, he offered me a job, and I've been there ever since. And I've been incredibly happy uh, working with him and working with everyone at Yale. And I cover the Upper Midwest, um, which is generally uh, from um, the Mississippi River west to Montana and Wyoming, and everything in between. Um, we we do a lot at Yale, so we have a whole brokerage team, but we also have an equity team. So if you are uh, an operator looking for um, some investment or you're an LP looking for an operator, we can connect people. We have a financing team that does um, debt. So if you're looking for term sheets from banks, we have a whole team that has relationships with banks. Um, we are have our toe in a few other things that are kind of being developed, but we're trying to be a full service business where no matter where you are in the space, you... Uh, can get some value from us. We can add value, you know, all across the spectrum. So it's an exciting place to be. Um, we're all very collaborative. Uh, it's fun. We're having a great time. 
No, that's great. No, I always enjoy working with you guys. Lots of you guys, you mentioned other firms as well. You a lot of good firms out there. You guys are definitely one of them. And I know with James, with you, you guys have a, a fun party at and dinner at a lot of the events. So it's always, a yeah, so. if I, if I make the guest list and then uh, anybody else is privileged enough to make the guest list, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, to, uh, it's and a lot of great. Crazy. Yeah. It's actually coming up pretty soon. So at the end of April, we have a, um, you know, we have the MHI expo and every year, it's a big part of James's, you know, overarching plan. He throws these two big dinners, uh, you know, one each night um, at the MHI conferences, and then also the one in, in uh, November in Chicago. And he invites as many uh, owner operators as possible. And so you have 50, 60 owners in a room just talking shop, uh, telling personal stories. It's a pretty exclusive and impressive room to be in because there's so much experience and there's so much deal making going on. And we get a lot of feedback that that's one of their best events of the week uh, from from attendees. So it's great. And <laughs> James has this thing about how he makes everyone stand up and tell a fun fact about themselves as we go around the room. And so at least from from the brokers, from the employees of Yale, it's always a terrifying moment to come up because we do this every year. So we have to come up with a new fun fact right. every single dinner every year. And we do two dinners at an event and two events a year. So four new fun facts every year. And I don't know about you, but I'm not that fun to have four new fun facts every year. So it's always nerve wracking to come up with something, but uh, it makes the night really enjoyable and, and we all have a lot of fun. No, that's good. I've been, I've been to a couple, been to several of those and some other groups do similar. I've, I thought about doing one for the law firm at one point and then I saw, I got a glimpse of what the bill was and I was like, I'll just, I'll just be a guest, man. This, it's yeah. Uh, quite James event. is a great generous guy. It's, he gives back a lot. He really thinks about the future when it comes to having a business plan. He really wants everyone he works with like part of the family it's it's a really good place that's great yeah well james i okay not james if you can ken i wouldn't be doing my job I I was, if uh, i didn't take it for him <laughs> yeah you're talking about him um i uh wouldn't be doing my job i didn't ask your view of the market as we're sitting here you know end of first quarter uh 2023 interest rates are crazy inflation is even more crazy um, what are you seeing in the marketplace right now as far as deal flow deal pricing closing ratio and then and what are your views on the the next quarter and or the rest of the year sure absolutely i mean you know there's a lot of brokers out there who they just say the same stuff every day you know everything's great keep buying keep buying and i don't think i'd be honest or transparent if i was just you know selling the same stuff every day the truth is is that we are in a transitional uh market i don't think we're transitioning necessarily up or down i think the market's trying to figure out which direction we're going in we had a bull market for a long time. Uh, interest rates changed, and that changes the market. Um, buyers and sellers are definitely uh, still figuring out who has leverage and, and where prices are going to end up, whether they're closer to buyer expectations or seller expectations. But to be honest, um, especially in the last couple of weeks, you know, there's been a lot of volatility, and there's been a lot of flight from safe assets. Um, I don't know if your viewers are paying attention, but you know, the price of gold has gone way up. People are into Bitcoin again. Uh, people are trying to get their money out of banks for obvious reasons right now. And so there's actually a lot of capital on the sidelines that is looking to do something. And that puts pressure on, uh, upward pressure on sales and volume. And actually it's not a bad time at all to, uh, to get some deals done because there's a lot of money out there, at least from the seller's point of view, there's a lot of money out there um, that is looking for a home uh, more so than there was, you know, even a couple months ago. So it's actually, it's not, um, there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, there's going to be blood in the water and sellers are, are going to be, you know, on the hook and it's a buyer's market. It's a transitional market. It's not that at all. Actually, in the last couple of weeks, it's going in the opposite direction. And it may change again in another couple of weeks. But right now in this moment, it's actually not a bad market at all. We're seeing a lot of deal flow and a lot of a lot of good action happen. That's interesting. Yeah, that's not what that's not what you would assume, just because, I mean, most commercial real estate has a, a debt component to it. I mean, not that many of us are cash buyers. Right. And if you if leverage is a key variable, typically 65 to 75 percent, maybe 80 percent of the capital stack. And right. if it's up, man, good, good grief, 200 bips or more from what it was a year ago, you know, you'd think there'd be a correlation and cap rates would be up. Maybe not, you know, dollar for dollar, but you'd think there'd be some cap rate uh, increase. There is. I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you there's no cap rate changes going on. Uh, I think a lot more deals are getting done with seller financing. I think there's a lot more ways to be creative about that. And um, I think there are conversations happening between sponsors and, and LPs about, you know, different ways, you know, deals are going to happen moving forward. Um, I think there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
debt is getting harder, had, was harder, is harder now than it was, you know, six months ago or whatever. But there are creative ways still to make deals, a lot of seller financing and some other ways to do it. So it's just, we don't know what the future is going to be. And nobody has a crystal ball. And so we're just, we're in a transitional market. And um, I would say the last couple of weeks are, are promising, but you never know. You know, we'll see where it goes. Okay, good insight, Sarah. What about the type of deal right now? Is, are there, you know, are smaller deals being impacted differently than larger deals? What about certain markets? I mean, are people, you know, still paying you know, premium for uh, premium markets or are all markets being hurt or tertiary markets different or different from utilities or park-owned homes? If you, if you had enough data points in the last 90 to 180 days to see where that lands? Sure. Look, I think a stabilized deal that is close to 100% occupied, that is city water, city sewer, those deals are going to be fairly similar to what uh, what we saw you know, before the big changes. There's always going to be a premium on those because there's those are the deals that as many buyers as you have want those. I mean, that, that's where the buyer attraction is. Buyers want the stabilized deals. They're easy to understand. There's a lot of competition for those deals that drives prices up. For the um, value-add deals, it's a little trickier. Absolutely. It's harder to justify um, paying a premium for those deals. It happens. Every deal is, is, is case by case, but there's there's less future value being paid uh, for some of those value-add deals for sure. And so, you know, in those cases, sellers are adding value themselves, trying to get closer to a stabilized, um, stabilized uh, price or, um, you know, something creative is happening where it's seller financing. And, you know, it's, uh, it's a slow payout over time um, that eventually gets them to their, their expectation as far as pricing. Um, yeah, Stabilize is definitely uh, doing well. Value add um, is a little rockier. Um, and, you know, it, it goes with the market. So my market, you know, as far as location, my market is the upper Midwest. Um, you know, it's everything except the Sunshine States, the nose of the country. Um, and so... Those cap rates are just generally, um, that's why I like the, that part of the country too, actually. Those cap rates are just by and large higher. I mean, your, your coastal states, your, your um, Sunbelt states, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of cap rate compression, no matter what the interest rates are doing. Uh, there's just more chance to make money in, in those Midwest states. And so, you know, because of that, um, there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit more movement, you know, in, in cap rates um, for the buyers because there's less less demand, but it, it's all case by case specific, you know? I think, I mean, that's why I like the Midwest is because buyers can really get into that market and make a lot of money and there's less competition and there's a there's an easier way to, to, if you're a new buyer, to start your business there because um, mistakes are much bigger on the coastal states if you don't know what you're doing. So, um, no, I think, it's, I think it's a great market, great location. Um, and, uh, and I think I still think there's opportunity, absolutely. Yeah, good stuff. Tell me what your your views are, what your your clients or what you see from other buyers. I know you guys are mostly on the sell side. What do people think about vacant pads? And you mentioned value adds a little dicier, you know, a lot, lot more unknowns than a fully stabilized deal. You know, five, six years ago, you know, the conventional wisdom was a vacant pads worth zero. It's worth net, it's worth less than zero. You got to mow the grass and pay the property taxes, right? Um, but then in the last few years, it's been no a vacant pad already has infrastructure infrastructure costs something and in the right market all you got to do is finish the job right so you, I, I got some parks right now that are full if five homes went away tomorrow i'd be like okay i gotta go sell five more houses give me 60 days and we'll be we'll be back to full occupancy other markets is like wow this is going to take a minute to fill five or, or in some cases 55 vacant spaces so how does that come into the decision makers yeah i mean i think for a lot of buyers um you know, it's really about the IRR in terms of how fast you can fill it and what that year five return looks like. Uh, and, and that's how the deal makes sense. Um, I agree, different markets are different. I mean, if you are in a market where you can get homes in quick, the value of that home goes up. If you're in a market where there's no economic drivers, there's no jobs, there's no reason for anyone to move there. Yeah, those pads are pretty much close to zero. Um, it really is, is, you know, case by case. Um, it all depends. I think you've said in the past, sometimes the answer to some questions is it, it just depends. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the lawyer's answer to every question. Yeah. It, dep it depends. Um, um so there's, a lot, just, there's a lot of truth to it. It's not just dodging the question. It's like, well, no, it absolutely. absolutely. Look, we, you know, 
we do represent sellers. Uh, we have a lot of questions about stuff like this. You know, there's a seller who, you know, uh, bought a park from a mom pop owner who didn't do much. They added a little value, but they didn't take it the whole way. You know, how much is it worth if they want to move on to their next project? We we get these questions all the time. And so it's really, it's really about the market. I mean, homes are easier to get now than they were, uh, you know, six months ago. So that actually adds value because you're not waiting a year because uh, you only need five or 10 homes and someone in front of you is um, ordering 500 and you can't get any. Uh, homes are, are easier to get these days. So it's easier to fill. So the value of those pads is up. Um, yeah, it really kind of all depends. I mean, the short version is that it really just depends what the value of the park can be in, in five years, you know, and what that IRR is and, and you know, how fast you can grow rents. Um, it's, it's about the market more than it is about the pad itself. I think. All right, that makes sense. So obviously the, the, a key variable that sellers and buyers are going to disagree on is going to often be price. Other than price, what are the key sticking points that are keeping you from transacting on a, on a given transaction? Is it terms or financing or due diligence or other representations or warranty in the contract? Or what is it, you know, if, if I'm the buyer trying to, you know, if you're, if you're at 5 million and I'm at 4.99, we're, we're pretty much there on price. What are the other things that you may may cause you to not choose me over one of the other buyers, perhaps even a buyer that's at a lower price? Sure. Yeah. Look, we we don't always. So we advise our clients, our clients, you know, if we're representing the seller, the seller ultimately chooses who to go under contract with. Um, but we obviously give them advice. We have a lot of experience. We've dealt with a lot of these buyers before. And so we can kind of lay the playing field for them. And when we look at the playing field, we look at who the buyers are. It's really about, um, it's often about the price. I mean, it's, you know, one of the big reasons it's the big number on the top of the contract. Um, but it's also about um, your due diligence period, how fast that is, um, hard money down. I mean, no buyer likes to put hard money down, but that is a great way to separate yourself from the pack is to put some hard money down. Um, you know, any other terms as far as closing or things like that. I mean, you can do seller financing and then you have all sorts of different terms as far as interest rate and amortization and all that stuff. Um, but I mean, I think if you are, just to answer the question from a perspective of what can a buyer do to stand out, you know, I think that uh, getting as close as you can on price, but also um, doing some hard money down, even if it's a little bit, just to show that you're committed to the deal and doing your research and, and answering all those questions about DD, asking all those questions about DD so I can answer them ahead of time before you, you put in the offer. I mean, just to back up a second, we represent sellers and oftentimes we do a listing process where we have a marketing period for five weeks or so. And so in that period, we're having a lot of conversations with buyers about the property. And in order to stand out in that period, just be responsive, ask good questions, visit the property even. I mean, that would be a great thing to do. Um, I can't say how many people, both on the brokerage side and the principal side, they do deals all day long. They never visit the property ever. <laughs> it's the craziest I know thing. It. I can't, that's, I can't, but I'm trying to buy a deal right now and it's from the seller and his price is, I don't know, million, million, five, million, six, and I'm around a million three. And okay. I don't really think I can go higher. And, but I visited the property. Yeah. My acquisitions guy visited the property. He's been in my office three times for me. Um, yeah. And I don't have the highest price and I don't have the most money or the best debt terms, but okay. Hey, I'm showing them I'm serious. Now I haven't won the deal yet, but I, I, I see that working on a seller finance deal, but on a, on a broker deal. And I know in the, the recent transaction we worked on together, uh, you had a list of, I don't know, 75 buy, potential buyers. Yeah. And if you'd have given me the top five, if I had to pick the top five at the beginning, I'd have picked these five. Yeah. And then those weren't the five. And the one that was the clear top, like this, this company in my mind should have bought this park based on both what they paid on a, a, a similar park. Sure. nearby sure. and they weren't even they didn't even have interest it was like yeah. what you guys are the you guys are the right <laughs> guys they're like no no we don't want that one it's too small i'm like really it's a crazy thing uh being in brokerage you know everyone comes to you and says what's my park worth who's the buyer and the truth is it's not really our job to give definitive answers to those questions our job is to tell you um through a process and get you an offer and have that offer definitively be the best buyer and the best price. So, you know, we often work with sellers and we say, you know, here's what we think the market will bear. 
But our real job is to, is to take that property to market and make sure that we get offers from everyone who wants to make an offer, expose it to everyone. And only then will you really know what that, what that offer, what that price is. You know, buyers, they have a criteria, you know, that park might fit that criteria, but, you know, their committee one day decides they don't want to do that or you know, their boss is on vacation, he needs the final approval and he's not around to do anything. Any number of things happen. A deal goes bad you know, in their portfolio and they don't wanna do deals like that anymore. And you don't know that. These things happen all day long with buyers and it's hard to predict. We're on, we're on phone calls with these buyers all day long talking to them, but so many things happen. It's hard to predict who the right buyer is for the right property in any given day or month or year. And so what we do, what we've had so much success doing is that we run this process where we expose the property to everyone in the marketplace and we get them uh, five weeks to, to understand the property and ask all the questions they want. And what that does is it allows us to make sure that we have gotten offers from everyone, even the ones that we, you know, like you said, we thought maybe this buyer was the right one and actually turned out to be this buyer. We're exposing it to both of them. We see who wants to compete and they offer their price and uh, we see who, who offers the most price, the highest price. Um, it's really for us, just to side, you know, uh, sidetrack into the Yale process, it's really about um, getting all the buyers to compete and, uh, and really you know, having them submit their best foot forward and then deciding from there who the right buyer is. You know, we have a deadline, we have a call for offers, offers are due on a specific deadline. You know, it might scare some buyers to hear this because they, you know, they like off-market deals where there's no competition and they, you know, want to sweet talk the, the seller. And I, I get that. I'm nothing against that process. Um, what we provide as a brokerage is we have a seller who's willing to sell and we know the price he's willing to sell it at and we, you know, can deliver it to you. If you are a small buyer or you don't have a huge acquisition team or, or you just don't, don't have good deal flow, that's where the brokerage, you know, comes into play and we can have a great deal flow for you, you know, exactly what's going on. We've done all the uh, due diligence for you already. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a good value add for buyers who weren't seen a lot of deal flow. And so in that process, if you're a buyer and you want to stand out, um, you know, those are, as we said, those are kind of the things that, that work for you. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we do a lot of listings and a lot of buyers come back and keep buying deals from us because they like that process. They like the fact that we do the due diligence up front for them. We like that there's a fancy package. They know what they're getting themselves into. There's no surprises. Um, you know, and and as far as the sellers, you know, what they get is they get uh, you know, at a, after a five-week marketing process, they get, you know, five to ten offers, something like that, where they know what the market looks like. They know what their property is worth. We have exposed it to the whole market. They know definitively what that property is worth because the market has spoken. Um, and that's kind of our job as brokers is to definitively tell you what the market values at because these are what the buyers are valuing at. These are what the buyers are offering. So that's something we do really well in terms of our process and, and exposing it and having a, a call for offers deadline. I don't want a long-winded tangent there. No, but. no, it's, the minute. It's, it's good to share that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a thorough process to really find it. You just went through it yourself. I just uh, went through it, right? I didn't make, you didn't just make assumptions and be like, well, here's what's going to be. It's like, no, we're going to find out what it's going to be. And then right. at the end you had to say, was I happy with it or not? And if, right. and if, and if, and if you would have brought me an offer at, at X and I wanted 1.2 X, well then I didn't have to take it and in, and all that. So, I mean, I'm curious what percentage of the time, if you could share our sellers, it may not just unreasonable, but the sellers not get the price that works or, or, or do you have it happen? I know I have another friend who's a broker at a different company and there's a deal I really liked. Yeah. I knew the deal. Okay. And he called me and he said, Hey, do you know this deal? I said, yeah. He said, I just got the listing. I was like, no way. Cause I'm calling you first. And I'm like, I'm at my desk and I get up and I'm like, I'm putting on my jacket. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm on my cell phone. I'm walking out the door. And I go refresh me on the occupancy. He tells me to have 50 yeah. occupied out of 130. Yeah. Here's the rent. And then, okay. Okay. And I'm just like in my head doing this. Yeah. And I said, what's the price? And he's like 5.2 million. And I was like, no, no, it should be. I'm like, did I get the cap rate wrong? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be like two point six million. And, I, and he goes, well, the <laughs> price, the price of the listing, is what it took to get the seller to list it, not the number that we pitched him of what we thought it was worth. And I'm like, oh, so I'm sitting back. I'm sitting back down. I'm taking my jacket off, and then we said, I went through the numbers. I'm like, right. 
that's like a two cap or three cap. That's even worse than I in my head. And he's just like, would you just do me a favor and make a low ball offer? I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm not getting in the middle of this. I'm like, yeah, that's uh, just to reset I, the pricing. So in that case, he was the broke. The seller was unreasonable. The broker knew it, but yeah. and, and you know hoped he'd get him to drop the price. So in right. those scenarios, would you just not take the listing, or do you like, well, we'll try, and sure. then you sure, know, sure. So there. yeah, it, it, I mean that's one wonderful world of being a broker is you're you're taking it from both sides, from both the seller and the buyer. So yeah, of course we have sellers who are unrealistic. I mean that's that's their job, honestly. I mean they're trying to get the most amount of money for their property. You know you can't fault them for that. Um, it's our job to you know, they can sell for whatever they want to. It's their property. It's our job to tell them from our experience with buyers in the marketplace, here's what we think a buyer will pay for it. Um, and we can, you know, have side conversations with buyers where we're not telling them about the property, but we're telling them generally the market and the occupancy and what do you think? And so we can get real data that says this is what this property is worth. Um, and we have, oh, just to back up, we have a whole team of underwriters who works with us. It's not just 10 brokers in a room. We have a whole team of underwriters and a whole team of marketing. It's actually a fairly... Um, supported company in terms of other people besides the brokers who are working towards, you know, helping the sellers, helping valuations and so on. So you get a seller with an unrealistic expectation. Your job as a broker is to tell him what the market will pay for it. And so he can take that information, do what he wants to with it. I think if you, if you, the property's worth 5 million and he wants 10 and you say, okay, I can get you 10 million. You're doing a disservice to both him and any buyer you talk to. I mean, it's about wasting time, to be honest. At the end of the day, all I have is my time. That's the only thing I have control over. You know, I do my best to close deals. I do my best to work with people. I do my best to solve problems. But the only thing I really can control from start to finish is my time. Who do I give my time to? And so if you are telling a seller you can get them double what the property is actually worth, you're wasting his time. If you're going to a buyer and you're saying, uh, you know, look at this deal. Oh, and by the way, you know, the list price is not the real price or the list price, you know, should be the real price, even though it doesn't make any sense, whatever it is, you're wasting the buyer's time. You know, that's not the, the hallmark of a successful brokerage career. Unfortunately, you gotta be honest with everyone. Uh, surprises kill deals. You, you just gotta, you just gotta be honest. And so, you know, you can work with people and I would never, if we're off by a little bit, you know, you let the market decide, you know, you think it's worth 5 million. He wants six. See what happens. You know, you take it out. You have buyers compete. Maybe you can get up that extra, you know, twenty percent or so. But if it's if you're talking about double or triple or something ridiculous, I mean, you got to have an honest conversation with people. Yeah. That's that's a that's, total. That's, I'm glad you said that. that. I'm glad yeah. you said that because that's what I did on this deal. I'm like, this is 22 minutes from my house. I'm like, yeah. I'm not even going to drive over there and look at it, you know, yeah. because I, because we're just so far off. You know, the worst thing about that is that, I mean, nothing against this broker, but that broker will have this listing for six months or whatever that term is, it'll expire because it won't sell. And for six months, he will be telling the seller, oh yeah, we're getting you the price. We're getting you the price. And the seller will believe it for six months. And it'll take another six months for him to realize maybe that price is wrong. And so that deal is now off the market for a year or more because the seller has been told something that is just not true. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. There's a deal I've been looking at. I looked at my email two days ago and it was August of 19. So almost three and a half years ago. And yeah. we were chasing the deal and the guy is seller financed seller finance and, and just a seller direct to right. actually built that guy actually built the park and, right. you know, back in the day. And he, he did a basic analysis, you know, revenue minus expenses, you know, NOI plus future potential income of all the, the 20 vacant lots I never filled right. you know, rounded, low cap rate he goes so about 1.57 and change um uh, let's he put in literally in his email say comma 1.4 as is where is and i look at <laughs> him like my offer was 850 right but he was at 1.4 well i'm still talking to this guy okay and since then he listed it with i think he listed it with two or three national brokers okay then a wholesaler who i'm familiar with had they all lapsed the yeah. prices come down the price went up at one point at one point it was like 1.7 then the prices come down and then a, a wholesaler had it tied up at a million and brought yeah. it to me recently and i said this is years ago. i'm like i'm at 900 and they wanted another 100 on top so i wanted 1.1 i'm like 
Um, I don't think I, I can't even get to 950. I'm at yeah. 900. Well, they, they didn't move it. Yeah. So I didn't want to go around them. You know, I knew the guy direct and, you know, like personally knew him. Yeah. But he didn't, you know, so then recently that wholesale contract expires. I let it cool off for a period and yeah. I reach out. I reach out to the guy. Hey, is this thing still available? And he just listed it again with a, <laughs> like a, you know, not a national broker. Not, okay. that, not, not that there's not good local brokers, but, yeah. you know, if somebody's got a Century 21 business card, Okay. Probably supposed to be selling single family houses, not yeah. seven figure or in this case close to mobile home park. And and he listed it for 1.2. He knows that I know yeah. that the wholesaler had it a million because we toured the property and he saw us. He goes, Were you just in my park? I'm like, yes. He goes, What are you doing? I go, I don't want to go around the other guy. We'll yeah. work with the you know, and but then after that guy let it lapse, I figured he'd call me. He didn't. He listed with another guy, jacked it up 200,000. I'm like, you're going to be selling this park for the yeah. better part of a decade. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good buyer there. I mean, I have, I own two parks in this town. Okay. Right. So like of yeah. like eight, I'm like, I have staff. Like the first move should have been to call you. Yeah, exactly. Five years ago. <laughs> well, and we've tried, we tried to buy it three or four times direct over the years, but he's just insistent on a price that, that unfortunately for him, the price is worse every day. Because the cap rates, right? So in the financing, so I'm like, you're, 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 I'm not. My price is going down. Yeah. And yours is, and yours is holding firm. Right. Or going up. Yeah. He's not bringing. He's not increasing rents. He's not submetering. He's right. not bringing in homes. Right. So it's like you have an asset that you're not improving. Right. Your property taxes are going up. Your insurance is going up. Your maintenance maintenance is going up. Your homes are getting older. Yeah. We, the, the time continuum we're get the gap is spreading man After, i mean i'm sure you deal with a lot of sellers we deal with a lot of sellers too that's our business all we do we don't manage we don't do anything else we're just dealing with transactions some sellers they tell you they don't want to sell they don't sell they don't want to sell you know sometimes they do what they don't want to do or they're doing what they're saying they're not what they don't want to do i don't think this guy wants to sell i mean i don't know him at all but yeah. he just doesn't want to sell i think he likes the attention from brokers and wholesalers that's my guess. I've had a lot of those people who love to talk, love love to looking waste your time, friend. looking for a friend. Exactly. Um, don't actually want to close on something. Um, it's pretty crazy. I mean, people who want to sell are motivated to sell, and they will compromise and they will get the deal done. If you are a buyer or a broker and your seller is going the opposite direction, I don't think he wants to sell. That's the like, no. opinion. He needs well, to. Because so four years ago, when I didn't give him his price, he told me. My kids are going to inherit it. My kids want to run it. Well, then two years ago, he called us. My kids don't want to run it. And that's when we told him his price was, that was like like one five. And that's when he listed the national company. And we're like, no, man, you just go ahead and list it. If you can get that. Right. Uh, I think I think I said something along the lines of, if you sell for that price, tell the broker he can sell my whole portfolio because he's a miracle <laughs> worker. Um, right. You know, and, 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 I, and I didn't sell my whole portfolio, right? So he's, it didn't work out, but. Right. Know. I right. go on, I'm going on a tangent, but it's my show, so I can do what I want, I guess. But um, <laughs> well, Ken, what what other what other what other tips can you give us or other wisdom for the market as far as what you see or or for for you know tips for buyers or for sellers, maybe to get their property ready for sale or um what other insights you want to sure. share? Yeah, I mean, as always, um to get a property ready for sale, you know, the more stabilized it is stabilized it is, the better. So, you know, raising rents at a um at a reasonable level where you're not, you know scaring people in terms of rent control, but you know, you're doing normal market raises, uh, infilling, bringing homes. That's a whole, you've done whole podcast on that. That's a whole other, you know, show, but you know, if you can do that, uh, that's great at to add value to increase property values. Um, just getting as close to stabilized as possible. And also just for all the mom and pop owners out there, um, if you own the property for 30 years, chances are your records aren't that great. <laughs> so maybe take six months or a year and work on an accountant and, and get 12 months of a PL together as opposed to off the top of your head on a napkin. You know, uh, you're not getting credit for something that is not on paper and not, you know, uh, written by an accountant. Um, buyers, you know, buyers are motivated to get the best deal possible. You know, you, you need to have backup information, you know, substantial information to say why you think your park is worth what it is. So records for sure. Um, uh, that would be a great thing to do for sellers. Call for direct. That's <laughs> how you sell your property. Okay. What well, is the beauty of the industry? You know, you have all these people in the industry. Sometimes you're yeah. friends, sometimes you're competitors. It goes yeah. back. You do the big, 
all the time. Uh, um, no, I think that, that that's good. And one thing, one thing I want to mention that I, I just was at the Biloxi conference last week, and I was sitting there as a broker, and I asked him what he was seeing in the market. This is a loan broker, not yeah. a sales broker. Yeah, and he said right now, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. He said we've hardly done a deal in the last six months because they are really wanting pristine quality and they want pristine records. So your advice to Ma and Pa helps them sell because they get good records, but it actually helps me buy and helps me pay more because I can get better debt if if your income is real improvement. So even though I generally don't want to pay more, I'm willing, you know, if you want two million, I can't pay two million if your records are junk. I can pay two one yeah. if I can get a loan. Sure. Yeah. So I, it's just an interesting thing that a lot of people don't think about is like, you know, if you get good records, you're going to, I'm going to pay more. Yeah, absolutely. And how much does rent manager cost? I mean, you know, what, what does that cost in terms of? Yeah, not, yeah, not very, not very, not very much. I mean, it's, it's more the, the, the thing any property management software, I feel like the real cost is the, the pain of learning how to use it and the machination of using it. Um, but any professional buyer or seller, you know, you should be doing that. But yeah, yeah I, that park we just sold in St. Charles, the seller that sold it to us, he built it himself, you know, 50 yeah. years ago or whatever. His records were handwritten. He was an engineer, civil engineer okay. by trade. His records were on grid paper. Okay. But they were, but they were pristine. And he's the first person I've ever seen. I got a whole long list of seller deliverables um, in the contract. He's the first person I've ever seen that had every single item, even had blueprints, because he had built he had blueprints, he had surveys, he had plats, original title work. <laughs> it's stuff that's like a red herring just to like buy me more time, right? He had all that stuff and he sent it in a big box and he he had some sort of um, alphabetization or na a numbering scheme yeah. to make it more organized. And you know what? everything was matching like he said here's my written revenue and expense this yeah. person has a late fee it's here they pay here promise yeah. to pay here it matched up with his bank records i'm like he's a he was a paw right but no right. he should he should have owned 50 parks he was so diligent but this was like his baby he had a shop in there you get away from the wife and go tinker in the shop he had yeah. he had three snowblowers he had four weed eaters he had two lumbers he had nine shovels i'm like why do you have nine shovels he's like because i forget one where i left it and i I need one. So I go to Home Depot, I buy another shovel, and then I find it later. And he's like, I got nine shovels. He had five tape measures, you know, in the same shop, all that stuff. But anyway, that guy had very diligent records. It made it easier for me to buy. Yeah. So even and he, but he, my point is too, he didn't need property manager software, but he's the, he was the exception. Fair enough. Um, so fair enough. But you come across those every once in a while. Um, fair enough. I mean, I love the deals where the, they have their own system, but they do it and they do it right. Sometimes those are the parks that, that are the best parks. You know, some, some guy who builds the park, he's a background in construction, knows everything about concrete, and the park is beautiful because of it, you know? I mean, doesn't use any Excel sheets, but um, but it's a great park and everything is accounted for. Sometimes those are the best ones out there. Absolutely. Um, I, bought two, I bought two deals. I bought a deal from a concrete guy, and he lived in the park. So the deal I just mentioned that you had helped to sell, and then another deal that we still own, both were, these are, I feel like these are the best deals to buy are buy from a, a mon pa who don't understand market rent, don't understand market cap rate, don't understand infill. But other than that, run the park better than you can do because they start one baby. So I had at least, I think just two that I'm thinking of right now where I'm like, I don't think I can run the park better than them other than they just never went to go find a mine home. So I can just fill the last five or six lots sure. and they, they raise the rent $5 every five years. If I raise it 25 or 30, that's not egregious in most markets and but it makes it moves the needle um yeah yeah so absolutely. it's like man i just want to keep the same try to keep the same love and right. care on the property that you did no i mean that's look they're not building any more parks i wish they were i wish they were developing stuff i mean it would change the dynamic of the business completely if suddenly there was more inventory but it is what it is they're not building more parks the ones that were built were often built by mom and pops and it was their baby and they loved them. And so absolutely, if we can continue running parks with the same care that they, um, that they built them and ran them with, um, we'd be in good shape. Sometimes the industry gets in trouble when they don't do that and they kind of treat it as, you know, something at arm's distance and, and they don't care as much. Um, but uh, yeah, no, those are, the, those are the best parks. Absolutely. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, other stuff to, to add? I mean, look, we like sellers and represent sellers. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> as far as buyers, um, you know, if you're a first-time buyer, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's hard to, to get into the space. So tips and tricks, um, you know, have your financials together, you know, have a proof of funds, have a schedule of real estate, even if it's not an MH. You know, as a broker, when I'm looking for a good buyer, even if I haven't met you or, or know you or, or work with you, uh, there's plenty of things you can do to put me, to put you on my radar. Um, schedule of funds, proof of real estate, so I know you can close. Um, going to the park is a great thing to do. I mean, even if you want to buy, and there's tons of them out there, yeah, 10, 15, 20 space park. I mean, it's not going to be a money maker, but if there's a local park, you can kind of tip your toe in the water, understand things have a deal story, you know, you come to me and you say, I own a 15 space park, but I've infilled before, I've dealt with rent increases, I've dealt with sewer issues. Uh, I know what to look for when I'm doing DD. Um, you know, that that puts you ahead of a lot of people who uh, just have a lot of money and don't know what they're doing. Um, yeah. You know, anything you can do to, to really, because I pass a lot of stuff to the seller, anything you do to make the seller comfortable about who's taking over the park, the legacy continues, that they understand how parks work and so during due diligence you know you see something normal that's not going to be strange or unusual to you you know what's normal you know what's not normal um those are kind of some of the things you can do as a new buyer to, to stand out um and then go to conferences i mean <laughs> i think it's a fairly expensive ticket but the conference uh in las vegas mhi expo a lot of people there it's a lot of networking a lot of a lot of um a lot of uh, good information and, and advice you can get there. And then there's conferences all over. I mean, every state convention, uh, every every state has an MHI convention, you know, go to that. I mean, those, you know, states would love more members. Even if you don't own a park, you're thinking about doing it. Um, right. Those are not expensive at all. You yeah, can, some of those are like $125, $250 a year. Yeah. And for, and for pricing, I think MHI, my pricing is different because I, got a booth and got several people about so it's like 550 or something but i think it's like 995 a person so it's not it's not five grand or ten grand so it's, it's I mean, it's not inexpensive but it's, assuming it's you're not, not throwing a dinner every night what's that assuming you're not throwing a dinner every night yeah well yeah i don't i don't have the thirty thousand dollar or eighty thousand dollar dinner how much it costs i'm 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 getting the burger and a burger and a beer on the street man um oh. but yeah, one thing i want to mention that you, you you hit but i want to i want to hit it a little harder there is um, for new buyers, I have a lot of clients that are first-time buyers, or, or even not even, even before that perspective, and call me, or just not even clients, just a bunch, bunch of people just checking in with me and you know picking my brain. And I'll tell them like, you know, I don't ever want to overpay for anything. I said, but sometimes you might need to overpay or at least pay retail or buy a deal with more hair on it for your first deal, so that you can get some experience. But also then when you call that broker, and I have one person in particular, and she she was buying this deal a little a little too heavy but she knew she was i've been brokers are blowing me off and she's like i'm gonna overpay and it was not a big deal and so it was 550 she was paying it was probably worth 500 she's like i'm gonna pay and she had a nice day job and could afford it she's like, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna if you fix it it was gonna be worth seven or something it wasn't gonna be worth two million but she was gonna buy the one so the next time she calls you she can say hey ken i'm looking to expand my existing mobile mobile home park portfolio sure. that is way better than hey ken I've never bought anything before. You're really busy. You just said on a podcast, your time is all you have. I'd like to steal your time to talk about this $10 million deal. And I got $8 in checking, but I'm going to syndicate. Um, you know, so right. getting that one and getting that one, you know, bird in hand. Um, right. I, I, and I told her that's going to move the needle of brokers. Cause I remember I used to call brokers and it was, even if I had, you know, it was, it's hard, you know, cause I don't have, and I, and I tell them, you know, I can't buy my cost of capital is not the same as some of these players, right? I can't pay the highest price on every, on every deal and probably not on any deal unless I got, you mentioned earlier reasons some of the buyers didn't buy something going wrong in their portfolio. Like this yeah. one guy I was talking about earlier, I can pay more than the next guy for that park because I already have a manager. I already have a maintenance team. Sure. I already have salespeople. I already know the market. Um, I already know the city. I've already done the zoning review. I already know that park. I already got a guy that'll service the lagoon like i'm kind of ready i already have a local bank you know i already yeah. have the money ready like i could probably close this deal in 30 days you know but but not at 30 percent over the price well sometimes maybe, over, maybe five over maybe five over maybe 10 over compared to the other guys but, i mean sometimes assurance of, of closing is the thing that gets the deal done you know especially for a deal 
that's been overpriced and sitting out there for a year or something like that, you know, seller's frustrated. You come in, you say, I can close in 30 days at 5% or 10% less than your ask. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty convincing, you know? So if you, if you are a buyer and you know the market and you can prove that, uh, and you can prove an assurance of close, um, that's, that's definitely something worth, uh, worth talking about with the broker and, and something that the broker will talk about with the seller. Absolutely. And look, if you, if you know the deal, you like the deal, you've been to the park, you know everything about it. As I said before, put some hard money down. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, um, <laughs> You know, a lot of buyers don't like to do it because they just don't like to be pigeonholed, you know, into committing to a park. But if you know you like the park and you're willing to commit to the park, put something down, put some hard money down. I mean, even if um, the seller doesn't know what to think of you, he's at least thinking he's going to walk away with something. How much how much are you talking there? You t- like if I put twenty five hundred down, is that going to move the needle or do I need like twenty five thousand down on a deal? Look, it depends on the size of the deal, right? Yeah. So if you're doing a $30 million deal, you know. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a big, that's a huge, but let's say it's a $2 million deal. Do I need to put 50,000 down? Because fifty thousand. Because if I wanted to put 50,000 down on anything, and I have a client that's put 250 plus down on deals firm, and I'm like, you guys are crazy, but they do it. And a lot of them came out of multifamily, so they did it. But, so we helped them. One guy in particular, we said, put 250 down, but we need to have some a few outs in the contract. If it fails in sewer inspection, zoning, survey, title, we get the money back or misrepresentation. And in this deal, the seller misrepresented and we were able to prove it. We got the 250 back. Plus we were able to sue for additional damages because that was in the contract as well. But he won the, you know, it ended up being a bad deal. He won the deal. He won the deal because he had 250. It was was like a $5 million deal. He had 250,000 down. I was like, dude, that that money talks. But what's the minimum I can get on a $2 million deal? What's the minimum that I should put down to really get to the front of the line on hard money? I mean, it depends on how much exposure there is, depends on how many, how big the line is. But I think by and large, there aren't a lot of buyers putting money down. So it doesn't have to be a crazy number. You have a $2 million deal. Hopefully your, your earnest money deposit is at least 20 grand. Right, you know? at least one, one to 2%, yeah. So I would say if you can put five or 10 down as hard money, $5,000 is hard money, 10,000. Um, that's more than a lot of other people are doing. Absolutely. It shows commitment. More than the money itself, it shows commitment. It shows that you've looked at the deal and you know what you're doing and you're willing to commit to it. it it's really what it is. Um, you know, you're not putting the whole purchase price down. You know, you're just doing a small percentage. Right. In, in, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not trying to say five grand or 10 grand is not that much money, but in the grand scheme of things, if that's what it takes to, to win a deal you know you want already, there's no reason not to do it. Absolutely. No, that's a, that's a good point. I should, I should, I'm going to consider that more. I'm, one of the lawyers here played professional poker for several years, so he's, a, he's really always talking in poker terms and odds and everything like that. And he said, you know, he made the point one day that every time you put earnest money down, even if it's refundable, there's some there's some you basically lost some money because statistically you have some risk the seller is going to be difficult and the title company's not going to release it, and then you got to go spend money to get it released. And I, and I, re- you know, and I recently chased a deal and I was going to be, it was a hundred K down and I had not seen all the parks and I just kind of got a bad vibe when I had a, an acquaintance who uh, contacted the business that had told me some information about the park that made me a little yeah. we- queasy. So I, I had the contract signed by them. I was supposed to sign it in the morning and, and wire a hundred K and that's a lot of money. Right. And so I was like, man, I better. So I ended up getting up early and I hit the road and I went and looked at this other park. And I drove about two and a half hours and I got there and there was six parks and I turned around and I drove home after three and I didn't go look at the other three. And I know exactly what deal you're talking about. Yeah, I know you do. We <laughs> talked about it too, but, and, and the nice, nice enough guys all around, but I was just like, I'm not paying that price anymore. So I'm glad I didn't put the hundred down and they, we don't, they hired a big law firm. I was negotiating with two lawyers back and forth, oh, wow. finally got the contracts. So they had some, they had some money spent on legal. Sure. I had a lot of time spent on it. Yeah, but I was like, you know what? If I put the hundred down, and then they get pissy that they spent legal. I had this happen on a retail deal one time. The okay. seller's like, we spent all this money on lawyers, and you guys didn't even really give it a good shot. And we had twenty five k down. They wouldn't release it. And the title company, even though the contract says it's the sole right of the buyer for unilateral oh, sure. termination, yeah. If the, if the seller says there's a dispute, don't release it. The title company is going to be like, we're going to just interplead the funds yeah. into court, and we're not going to do anything. And then you got to go fight or sue, or they try to negotiate you to chop. So I was like. 
when I heard that analogy about the, you know, you already lost some money. I'm like, you know what? It rarely happened. Most of the time when I, and I don't kill that many deals, but I've had to kill some deals. Right. I've yet so far, every time I've got hundred percent of my money back, but right. I've seen people not. And, and it, it, so there is a call to 1%, 5%. 10%. If you put 5,000 down, even refundable, you already lost 500 if in, in the long run. I thought I never thought of that really the same way, but I, I always feel sure. now because it's a really good analogy. Sure. I mean, that's the, we can move into something else in a second, but that's the downside. I think the upside is you win more deals, you know, for, for doing that. Um, you get deals that you wouldn't have otherwise won because you put something down and you put a little bit of hard money down. I, I would argue that it pays for it in, in some grand scheme in, in the long range. Yeah. Um, I don't know. No, no it's, I, it's, I, you can just you can just think of it as pursuit cost. You know, I, I right. used to chase grocery stores and we spent like a quarter million. My partner was the money guy, but it's been like a quarter million dollars chasing grocery stores in Milwaukee. It had a bunch of sites tied up right. and the market was just bad um, and we couldn't get the retailers to come and 250 in the hole. You know, like, but he's like, he's like, yeah, whatever. I'll say if it comes back around. He goes, yeah, last year I lost 500. And then this year it came back. I turned it into 5 million because the same sites come back or the same research comes back. I'm like, you're playing with big dollars, but he had, he kept the file of each deal with the sunk cost. So if they ever came back, those would then be deal costs to be reimbursed even years later. But was, you know, that was the extreme example. That's, but yeah, now we're talking about a risk profile. How risky do you want your business to be? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> each their own, but uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of what a buyer can do uh, to separate. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's fun. I mean, it's a fun business. I like uh, I like dealing with buyers, I like dealing with sellers. Um, it's a fun business, but yeah, there's a lot of nuances to it. So, it's a good time. All right, Ken. Well, good stuff, man. I appreciate your time. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you after this? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, Yale Advisors, uh, YaleAdvisors.com. Um, I cover the Upper Midwest, but there's a lot of great guys at the company, I would actually uh, encourage you to invite some of them on, our debt guys and our equity guys. They have a very interesting um, take on the industry. But for me, uh, my email is, is pretty simple. It's ken at yelladvisors.com. Um, one office number, 312-858-8906. Um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I would encourage anyone who listens to this, go on yelladvisors.com, see what we have, see how you know a good professional brokerage runs and, and give us a call. I'm sure there's something we can uh, can help you out with. All right, man. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye now. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts. Give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.